Just listen. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. A little bit later, you'll need to be in Genesis chapter 1, but I just wanted to read Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 to get our thoughts going this morning. The Apostle Paul has just given us the doctrines of grace in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, and now in chapters 4, 5, and 6, he's telling us how to walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, that being a Christian, which Ephesians 1 says, we're chosen by the Father, we're redeemed by the Son, we're sealed by the Spirit. It means that your life is now different, that you do things differently. And Paul gets to the very practical foundation of how a Christian functions in the family. Chapter 5, husbands love your wives. Wives respect and submit to your husbands. But wives and husbands have a tendency. They tend to make children. And so then the Apostle Paul goes on and in just four verses, he gives us a, a concise but a densely packed theology of how believers in Christ ought to bring up their children. He gives the duty of the children. Obey your parents, honor your father and mother, and he gives the duty of the parents. Do not provoke children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In four verses, we get four commands, four imperatives. To the children, obey and honor. To the parents, do not provoke and bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. And for the next number of weeks, we're going to use Ephesians 6, 1, 2, 3 and 4 as our our home base, kind of our guide to examine parenting for God's glory. Now, why would we say parenting for God's glory? Well, because we often have other reasons for learning about parenting. So we're doing parenting for God's glory as opposed to parenting to have the best behaved kids, parenting to guarantee their salvation, parenting to create a facade for others to admire, parenting to create your own little family cult of self-admiration, parenting to make your life easier, although that can be a byproduct, parenting to feed your own ego as you create little cookie cutters of yourself, or parenting to look down on others who have more difficult children than you. Those are all hedonistic reasons. We want to parent for God's glory. What does that mean? It means that we parent as an expression of your love for Christ out of obedience to him, regardless of the results of your parenting. We, we parent as an expression of love for others, that all those around your children will be impacted by how you parent. We parent as an expression of love for your spouse, because biblical parenting begins and ends with the fact that your marriage comes first, and so you parent in a way which keeps the children second. And we parent as an expression of love for your children. In fact, the book of Proverbs says that to not proactively engage with your children, if I could put it this way, to specifically not to initiate conflict with them over their own sin, it means you hate your child. And so what does it mean to parent for God's glory? It means that we obey the word out of love for Christ, out of love for others, out of love for your spouse and love for your children. That is parenting to the glory of God. Now, the challenge in these series that we do is the understanding that not all of you are in this stage of life, and I understand that. So I want to give you three reasons why all believers need to hear this message, these series of messages. First one, 
All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. There's no caveat there. There's no asterisk. All scripture is useful to all believers at all times. And why is this? Because everything in scripture does something to the believer. It brings about the change of your mind and it brings about the change of your heart because you're getting and you're understanding God's viewpoint, which is the only one that sanctifies, the only one that brings about Christ's likeness. And so we don't want to treat the Bible just as some how-to guide. The Bible is the living, written word of God which changes you. And it doesn't matter what you're reading, what you're studying, it will change you. Here's a second reason that everyone needs to hear these messages. Parenting is not just about your child. It's about everyone that your family comes into contact with. Uh, Many classroom teachers in, in schools and Sunday school teachers have come across the ill-behaved child who won't follow instruction and then they seek a parent's support and here's what they hear. They hear something like, well, we teach little Johnny to speak his mind and express himself. In other words, we teach him to be selfish and to not consider others at all. Why is that? Because you parents are selfish and you don't consider others at all and so that's your value. Our ushers on occasion will ask someone, none of you here, of course, will ask someone to take a fussy child or baby out of the worship service. And once in a while, we will hear, again, from nobody here at all, well, my baby needs to be with me. Translation, my baby is more important than all of these people trying to hear the spoken word of God. So parenting is not just about you, it's not just about your child, it's about everyone your family comes into contact with. Here's a third reason everyone needs to hear this. Understanding how we are to parent benefits all of you because it gives us really tremendous insight into how the Lord loves and disciplines and guides us as our Father. We learn what Scripture says about parenting and you have learned what Scripture says about God's relationship to you, how He is sacrificial in His love, how He is caring in His love, how He disciplines you in love, how He's never wavering from your sanctification, from your Christ-likeness, how he gives you love mixed with the consequences for sin and how he gives you total acceptance mixed with family expectations. And so if you learn what the Bible says about parenting, you learn what the Bible says about the father's treatment of you. What I want to do today, though, is just kind of give you some introductory thoughts to begin getting your minds and your hearts attuned to this topic Three years ago, I preached a series from the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, and we just called it Family Wisdom from the Wisdom Family. But many of you have come since then, and many of you have had more children since then. And so we need to circle back around. Now, we're going to overlap a lot of topics. That's the nature of the subject. That's okay, because when you're in the heat of battle and your three-year-old is winning, you'll be glad that, that we repeated some things. We're going to have a lot of application. That is the nature of the subject. Honestly, if you asked me, what would you preach if you had one sermon left? The only application would be look at Christ. But we need to get a little bit more down to earth on that. But we have to take some time to go through this because you can't just make a rule book. That, we love rules. I mean, we love legalism, don't we? We're very comfortable with it. It's like a little campfire. We kind of warm our hands over. As long as I know what the rules are, then we're good. But you can't make a rule book. How many of you here, just for my own curiosity, have more than one child? Raise your hand. Okay, keep your hand up if all of your children are exactly the same. I rest my case. It takes discernment. 
It takes prayer. It takes judgment calls. It takes grace at some times. It takes stern correction at other times. So you can't just make a rule book. We have to discern between the hard and fast principles of Scripture that never waver and the preferential issues of how to actually apply those principles. We're going to interrupt our usual routine of consecutive expository preaching. We've been in the Gospel of John, but on occasion it is good to take a broader sweeping look at at a topic. So we'll be looking at a number of passages um, today even. There's so much advice to be had on parenting, even in Christian circles. Most of it is bad. Most of it is frankly borrowed from the world. So what we really want to do is just try to synthesize what Scripture says. What what are the principles found in Scripture? And within those frameworks, there's a lot of freedom uh, based on your judgment, based on discernment, based on wisdom, based on each individual child and so forth. So to get our hearts kind of acclimated to, to thinking about this topic, I want to just give you kind of five important concepts that you need to grasp to concentrate your thinking on parenting for God's glory. Here they are. I'll give them to you up front. First of all, the backdrop of parenting to God's glory. The backdrop of parenting to God's glory. Second, the beginning of parenting to God's glory. The beginning of parenting to God's glory. The third concept we need is the blessing of parenting to God's glory. The blessing of parenting to God's glory. The fourth concept is the borrowing of parenting to God's glory. The borrowing. And then finally, the burden of parenting to God's glory. The burden of parenting to God's glory. We might call these the B-attitudes of parenting. So we want to start with the backdrop of parenting to God's glory. And before I really get into this, I need to say something to you, parents that may be thinking right now, is he just going to highlight all the ways that I have failed? Well, the answer is yes, I I will be. (laughs) But we've all been there. We have all failed, and so we're there together. This is, a, this is a journey. What about if you've raised your children already and you can't go back and undo that? The Lord is gracious. He's kind, but you are here to have an influence on others and to be a, a disciple maker of others. So let's look at the backdrop of parenting to God's glory, the backdrop. In other words, what is the environment in the world in which we live? What, what's the, what is the, the tide pool here that we're trying to, to swim against? Well, basically, to put it very bluntly, the world system is in total disagreement with what Scripture says about parenting on every front. That's to put it mildly. To the world, the family unit is disposable. Children are born naturally good. Consequences are inherently evil. Spanking a child is child abuse. Children are too tender to be corrected. Fathers are to be more effeminate. And mothers are to model toughness. You name it, the world has messed it up. The world has nothing whatsoever to offer you in terms of teaching you how to raise children because they don't have the right motive. What's the motivation of the world? It is to make happy children and happy parents. That's a wrong motivation because sometimes biblical parenting means purposefully making everyone unhappy, especially your kids. They need to see the consequences for sin. They need to be made unhappy. The world says spanking a child is child abuse. The Bible says that you hate your child if you don't spank him. You can't get as opposite as that. So what's the backdrop? What's wrong with parenting today and where did this come from? Where where did the backwards ideas, particularly the ideas grounded in, in liberalism and in permissive parenting and socialist ideals, which are incidentally so much a part of those other ideologies, 
where did our cultural norms of, of child-centered, self-esteem-saturated, try-to-reason-with-a-two-year-old system and philosophy come from? Where did it come from? Well, I would argue that much of the accepted sinful norms in parenting today came from the original agenda of the modern feminist movement. Because, listen carefully, feminism was never just about liberating the woman from the so-called oppression of staying home and being a wife or a mother. The modern feminist movement was never about women wanting to just get out of the house, earn some extra income for the family. It was never about wanting to pursue a career over and above pursuing my God-given role as a, as a wife and mother. And it was never about just having some freedom from duties to your husband and your children and your home life. It was never just about that. That was just a cover. That was just a disguise. That was just a, 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 a fake front. What was the original agenda of the modern feminist movement? What was the real hoped-for impact on society which has in large part been successful? The real agenda was the destruction and the tearing apart of the family as a unit. If you don't believe me, listen to a couple of women who have said so. The feminist leader, Sheila Cronin, she said this, Since marriage constitutes slavery for women, it is clear that the women's movement must concentrate on attacking this institution. Freedom for women cannot be won without the abolition of marriage, first of all. Of course, one of the most infamous leaders and groundbreakers in radical feminism, uh, Gloria Steinem, she said in the early 1990s, quote, by the year 2000, we will, I hope, raise our children to believe in human potential, not in God. November of 1971, a document was released called the Declaration of Feminism. It's the official agenda of feminism. Quote, the end of the institution of marriage is necessary for the liberation of women. Therefore, it is important for us to encourage women to leave their husbands and not live individually with men. All of history must be rewritten in terms of oppression of women. We must go back to ancient female religions like witchcraft. Unquote. Mary Jo Bain, the one-time associate director of the school's uh, Center for Research on Women, she said this, quote, in order to raise children with equality, we must take them away from families and raise them communally. Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, in an article called Women in the New Race, she wrote, the most merciful thing a large family can do to one of its infant members is to kill it. Vivian Gornick, a feminist author, she wrote this, quote, being a housewife is an illegitimate profession. The choice to serve and be protected and placed toward being a family maker is a choice that shouldn't be. The heart of radical feminism is to change that. A feminist author named Kate Millett in her book, Sexual Politics, she wrote, the care of children is infinitely better left to the best trained practitioners who have chosen it as a vocation. This would further undermine family structure while contributing to the freedom of women. In other words, make sure a trained professional raises your children, not you. Naomi Goldenberg in her book, Changing of the Gods, Feminism and the End of Traditional Religions, she wrote this, Quote, God is going to change. We women will change the world so much that he won't fit anymore. You understand that this is not just a, a, a social issue. This is a, this is a spiritual fight. 
Robin Morgan, the former editor of Ms. Magazine, she wrote this, quote, we can't destroy the inequities between men and women until we destroy marriage. By the way, Morgan is very famous a number of decades ago for beginning an organization called the Women's International Terrorist Conspiracy from Hell, or WITCH for short. Now, WITCH only lasted for three years because they were violent and they were difficult to get along with because nobody could get along with them. But even today, there is a growing movement to bring WITCH back. Linda Gordon, a feminist author, wrote this. The nuclear family must be destroyed. Whatever its ultimate meaning, the breakup of families is now an objectively revolutionary process. No woman should have to deny herself any opportunities because of her special responsibilities to her children. See, the real feminist agenda is not about equal pay or about career pursuits. It is a satanic attack on God's created order meant to completely brainwash women and men into the destruction of a biblical family unit to make it go away. So to believe that the world has anything to say to us at all on parenting is foolishness. They have nothing to say. That's the backdrop. That the world has nothing to offer. There's a satanic conspiracy to convince you to do the opposite of what the Bible says. And so for you parents who live in this culture, every time you make a decision as a parent, particularly a long-range direction for your family or a philosophical way of thinking, you need to be able to ask yourself and answer the question, where did I get this? Because if you can't point specifically the scripture, you got it from the feminist movement. I guarantee it. So that's the backdrop. Now let's look at the beginning. Let's look at the beginning. Now we can get to uh, Genesis 1. Genesis 1. Now one of the reasons that the world can't figure out right parenting is because right parenting isn't in a context. It's not in a context except a man-centered context. But the Bible reveals to us the purpose of mankind and how we were originally intended to carry out that purpose. And the basic unit of God's purposes consists in the family, that the family is the, the machine that drives God purposes, God's purposes forward. And so we see God's purposes revealed first in Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, mankind, if we're made in the image of monkeys, according to evolutionists, ultimately... That just trains us to have little, liberal, former monkeys in our homes who copy our ideology. And that's all parenting is about. That you're the next evolutionary uh, cycle and you need to do a little bit better than me. You need to be, be a little bit more whatever the evolution says you're supposed to be. But mankind made in the image of God, now we're placed on the earth In the context of a kingdom, God's ultimate purpose of establishing an earth includes establishing a people on earth to worship him, to be the vice regents, the co-rulers of earth on his behalf, and to reign with him in a perfect, pristine world. And where is God going to get those worshipers? From the families of the earth. That's where he gets them. 
And so God created Adam and Eve. He blessed them. And the first command of God to Adam and Eve is found in verse 28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So you have mankind made in the image of God and it's the only part of creation. You are the only part of creation said to be like God. And what is our job? It is to have dominion. And one of those ways we are to have dominion in the very first command of God, Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, make babies, make more people. Now, interesting side note here, those who are claiming to be homosexual, there's no such thing as a gay person, by the way. There are people who sin with homosexual sins. But homosexual, uh, people who practice homosexuality, they can't fulfill this purpose. They can't do it. And homosexuals who want to adopt children, they still have to rely on God's only created method of making children. They still have to rely on that. Now, as far as verse 28 goes here, we're not going to engage in the debate about whether be fruitful and multiply is a command or just a blessing. There are a lot of bad hermeneutics that have gone into making this a mandate against birth control. It's not. The case for that as a command is full of holes and it's pretty easily disproven. Uh, For example, the unmarried or those unable to have children would be in disobedience to this command if it's a command, including the Apostle Paul, including others that we know in Scripture. But generally speaking, married couples ought to have babies. And they most naturally desire to do that anyway. Why? Because it is one of the functions of being made in the image of God to make more who are in the image of God. It's one of the functions. And what was the original plan for these new human beings? It was to have dominion over the earth. Well, obviously, we have a problem here because mankind fell into sin And now that plan must be redeemed. It must be purchased back. And through the prophesied and now fulfilled death and resurrection of Christ, what will be the final result? What's the final result of the redemption of the world, the redemption of individuals in humanity? Nations and kings and rulers and citizens from the entire earth glorying in God, reigning with God, worshiping God, enjoying God in what? The original purpose, a pristine, perfect earth populated by worshipers, countless worshipers. And so the family unit is God's ordained way to create eventual worshipers who will glorify him for all eternity. And that fulfills the original purpose of the family. And so in each of your families, that's your ultimate prayer. Lord, let my children become worshipers of Christ. Let them fulfill the mandate for the family to be the breeding ground for the earthly kingdom of Jesus Christ, the coming king of the earth. Now you have a context. Now you have an understanding of what the beginning was about, what the family was about. Well, that's the beginning of parenting for God's glory. There's a third concept to grasp. We might call this the blessing of parenting for God's glory. The blessing of parenting for God's glory. And turn with me to Psalm 127. Psalm 127. Now, we looked at the similar psalms of 127 and 128 when we did our series on marriage, divorce, and remarriage recently, but I want to revisit it from kind of a, a different angle. These are well-matched psalms. They both speak of the blessing of the Lord, and they both specifically mention the family unit as one of the blessings of the Lord. Now, just to revive your memory here, 
Psalm 127 is a song about divine provision, both in your home, hometown rather, and in the home. It's proverbial in nature, meaning that it's filled with timeless ideas and proverbial truths that are general principles, generally true. The first two verses of Psalm 127 demonstrate that community and a family are living a satisfied life only when living by faith in the Lord. And then the last three verses demonstrate the general principle that children ensure the happiness of a family. They give happiness to the family. And Psalm 128 is like Psalm 127. It contains proverbial truths that are generally true and mentions the family. So I want to kind of go at these from a little different angle. I just want to observe ways that children are a blessing in these two Psalms. This is a, this is a, a common theological position which you need to be familiar with, that children are a blessing from the Lord. And so I might identify seven ways children are a blessing. The first we might call the blessing of purpose. The blessing of purpose. Psalm 127, verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Heritage speaks of something in Hebrew that is given as a trust. It's a responsibility. It's a stewardship. Now, how many new fathers and mothers have said at the birth of their first child, I just found my purpose in life? Hey, that's, a, that's a common, almost instinctive response to have found that purpose. Uh, children give us a God-ordained task to do, and every moment that you're a parent, you have assurance that you're living a life of significance and of impact. I've seen young couples who are newly married. They're married for, for a few years and the wife says, I, I don't, I, I'm bored. I don't know what to do. I've got the answer for this. You know, you can start your little clan here. They give you purpose. Here's another blessing we might call the blessing of posterity. The blessing of posterity. Verse three, the end of verse three, the fruit of the womb, a reward. How did God design all living things to reproduce? Genesis 1, according to their kinds, cows make cows, apple trees make apples, and human beings make human beings. That we, the creatures made after God's image, we reproduce other image bearers. And that's a phenomenal thought to think that that you make others who bear the image of God. And just to make sure we get this point, God made the little image bearers to carry some of our genetics forward, to look like us, to look like our image, to give us a little picture of what it means that we're created in the image of God, to have our personalities, for better or for worse, for some of you, to recognize your own traits. All of you and your children, you can say, well, this one is more like me and this one looks like you. We see this, the blessing of posterity, that you continue on in your children. And the children are are seen here in Psalm 127 as a reward for what? Simply for the faithfulness of being married and taking responsibility for a family, the natural reward for entering into the marriage covenant. There's a third blessing. We might call this the blessing of potency. The blessing of potency. Now, for thousands of years, here's how it's gone. Women have spent 40 weeks of their lives for every child being exhausted, having morning sickness, having their bodies stretched and changed to to degrees that we can't even fathom, then giving birth in a process that no man will ever actually understand. And yet for thousands of years, the fathers are congratulated as if they just built the Golden Gate Bridge (laughs) single-handedly. 
But beyond proving a man's ability to father a child, which every major culture has considered to be extremely important, the potency, the effectiveness, the impact, the influence of your lives as parents is suddenly multiplied. Look at verse 4 of Psalm 127. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. What do arrows do for a warrior? It increases his effectiveness exponentially. If you're a fan of the Lord of the Rings movies, the elf Legolas, he's the, he's the famous archer. Why is that? Because as only Hollywood can make him do, he's unstoppable because no matter how many battles he fights in the middle of nowhere without a Bass Pro Shop anywhere in sight, he never runs out of arrows. They just keep coming and coming. In the ancient Near East, the single most effective way to build the family business was simple. Have lots of children. It increased your effectiveness. It increased your potency. As a matter of fact, in our culture today, we lose that impact because we make all of our children start from scratch, right? You get your kids, hopefully through school, and they start with no money. And you say, well, good luck with that. And they start over. In the ancient Near East, you built on the success of your father and your grandfather and your great-grandfather, and the family home was built. And when you brought brought a girl home, you simply added another room onto the house. And that great wealth was created through that. You create potency. There's a fourth blessing. We might call it the blessing of power. The blessing of power. Verse 5 of Psalm 127. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them, children. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is not a complicated concept here. Solomon, who's the author of Psalm 127, he says you can speak with confidence when you're confronted by an enemy. Now, which gate are we talking about here? Well, there's two possibilities. The first one could simply be the gate of the town. The gate of the town is where debates happened, where court was held, where things happened. And this could be simply that the respect that's given the father of many children by others, even his enemies, in the gates of the town when debating issues, they understand, oh, this is a guy, he has, he has his eight children and 14 grandchildren. He's been around. He has wisdom. I think it's a little bit more straightforward than that, actually, though. I think it's just that if your enemies come to your gates and threaten your family and your 14 grown boys suddenly stand up with their swords and bows and arrows, you say, what were you saying again? Excuse me? He gives power. Blessed is the man that fills his quiver with him. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies. The fact is, though, Of course, we're not defending our homes by throwing our children at at bad guys. But the fact is, is that the father and mother who have raised children, they do bring to the table a wisdom, a bearing, a presence that's gained from the privilege of parenting. There's a fifth blessing we might call the blessing of pride. The blessing of pride, pride in the sense of satisfaction, of gratification, not the sinful sense of pride, but the normal sense. Psalm 128, verse 3 Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. The woman of the home, she has started off just as a wife. And now she's entered into the the realm of motherhood. Only a woman can grow a human being. Only a woman can bring into the world somebody who is made in the image of God. Every one of us owe our lives to our mother. I think the mother-child connection is an enigmatic kind of mystery 
created by God. It's beautiful. It's awe-inspiring. And by the way, it's not just biological uh, in connection. A woman can choose to bond herself to a child she didn't bear. I think about one little baby boy who was uh, adopted by the daughter of a Pharaoh who was willing to break the law to adopt that baby because of the instant connection that she had with the baby. Of course, that's our little Moses. Daughter of Pharaoh named that child. Listen, I don't care what lies the world tells you, the wonder and the awe and the mystery of becoming a mother is beyond understanding and it is what sets a woman apart from a man. It is unique and special. Listen, the mother does not have to earn the love of a child. It's just there. Father has to earn the love of the child. It is a different thing. And I think the saying is correct. It says, mom is a title just above queen. And that ought to be how we view this. There is a blessing of pride, the blessing of incredible joy. We might identify a sixth blessing. We might call this the blessing of potential. The blessing of potential. Psalm 128, verse 3, the second half. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. The picture of children is these young olive trees. In the Old Testament, this was a symbol of vigor and life and vitality and potential and promise and life. It's just this, that there, might, there are going to be good things coming down the road. All of you have certain things in life that perhaps you wanted to accomplish, but in the realm of God's will for you, weren't able to. But those things, and probably better things than that, are things that perhaps your children might accomplish. I remember before I was a parent, hearing parents talk about how much they admire their children. And I never could understand that. There was a sense of looking up to them. I never understood that until I had children of my own and see in each one of them things that I don't possess, unique qualities that make them different and in many ways make them better than me. There's, there's a joy in that. Well, we might identify one more blessing. We might call this the blessing of payment. The blessing of payment. Verse 5 of Psalm 128, The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Now, this is a, this is a deep topic here, and I don't have time to get into it, but basically these two verses speak of a promise of a future blessing, an eschatological hope of a future kingdom and living long enough to see your grandchildren. And so there's a sense, and if you ask a, a, a Hebrew in the time that the Psalms were written, they're thinking very much, what blessing do I get now? But there's also this look to the future, and these two are very blurred for them. Children and subsequent grandchildren are considered here a reward, a payment from the Lord. And here's what's amazing, though. The, the end times, the eschatological implications of these two verses seem to indicate that children and grandchildren are part of your eternal reward as well. What a phenomenal blessing. And children give the blessings of purpose and posterity, potency, power, pride, potential, payment. They are a blessing. And all of that should serve to do one thing for you, to treat them as unique and special. And they are important. The backdrop of parenting for God's glory, the beginning of parenting for God's glory, the blessing of parenting for God's glory. Let me give you a fourth concept to consider. The borrowing of parenting for God's glory, the borrowing of parenting for God's glory. Turn with me to Samuel chapter 1, 1 Samuel 1 rather. 1 Samuel chapter 1. Here's the phrase. These are my children. 
Well, that's not exactly true. Exodus chapter 13, chapter 22, chapter 34, Numbers chapter 3, chapter 8, chapter 18, Leviticus chapter 12, prescribed to the law-abiding Israelite that God owned the firstborn of every family and a price had to be paid to redeem that child. Does God just own the one child? Well, in reality, no. He owns them all. Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Fullness thereof is a fancy English phrase that means everything. All that is in the world is owned by him. Now, a couple of years ago, we did our Strength in the River series. We examined Hannah, the mother of Samuel. And Hannah had so deeply yearned to have the Lord open her womb that she vowed to the Lord that if he would give her a son, she would give him over to the Lord's service. And so the Lord heard her prayer and she had Samuel She had him with her likely for just three short years before bringing him to the priest Eli to be raised in the service of the Lord. And of course, we know that this was part of God's bigger plan. Samuel would become the transitional figure between the time of the judges and the time of the kings. In Israel, he would anoint the young boy who would become the mighty King David. And so Samuel figures greatly into the overall overarching redemptive plan of God. But for Hannah, this was way more personal as she said goodbye to her tiny little three-year-old boy, she declared to the priest, chapter 1, verse 27, For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he, Samuel, worshiped the Lord there. So the idea here is that I have loaned him to the Lord. One little challenge with this. The Hebrew word translated lend is used 170 times in the Old Testament and it's never translated to lend. More accurately, it's translated to ask or to borrow. In fact, the word is very related to the Hebrew word for Samuel. And so there's a word play here is more I think, appropriate in this context to say, I have borrowed him from the Lord and now I'm returning him. Doesn't that change things? Being a parent is not about ownership. Being a parent is about stewardship. Now, why is that important? Because if being a parent is about stewardship, then they're not your children and it becomes really important to see what the real owner says what you ought to do with his child that examining what Scripture says versus what the world says about parenting becomes your mandate, your imperative, your duty, your obligation. Now parenting has simply become another way that we express our love to the Lord by obeying Him. So it's vital to understand the borrowing of parenting for God's glory. Why is parenting done to God's glory? Because that child doesn't belong to you. You don't get to decide how to raise them. This is not your choice. This is not your option. But neither are you ultimately responsible for the results. That is God's business. Why do you correct your children? Because obedience gives glory to God. Why do you inflict pain on disobedient children? Because your obedience gives glory to God. Why do you insist that your children hear spiritual truth? Because your obedience gives glory to God. If you raise six kids and you did your best to obey the Lord, and six of them turn out to be knuckleheads, you gave glory to God. 
if you raised six kids and you did nothing that God says and they turned out pretty good anyway, God did not receive any glory. You see the difference? One final concept, one final imperative to laying the foundation here. We might call this the burden of parenting for God's glory. The burden of parenting to God's glory. God told Eve that as part of the curse of sin, quote, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing and pain you shall bring forth children. Now certainly the pain involved in physical childbirth is in mind here, but for any mother, the pain of childbirth is very soon eclipsed by the joy of that new child. And the body recovers over time and the little one in the home replaces that time of agony. But why is the f- this the first thing that God curses the woman with? Why is that? I will surely multiply your pain. It doesn't mean to make something get bigger. It means to make it more numerous. In other words, there is not just one pain. There is a second pain, a third, a fourth, a fifth pain that is multiplied, that's increased. It's not just talking about pain that's the motivation for humanity to invent the epidural. Because if that were all it is, then we've undone the curse of God now. The multiplying of pain is the fact that every child that blesses your family is tainted, is marked, is tattooed, as it were, with a sin nature that he and you cannot get away from. The first child to be born on this earth, the first baby Eve ever had, would become a murderer and convicted by God as a felon. We hold to the doctrine of total depravity, The children are born utterly incapable of coming to faith in Christ unless the Spirit of God draws them. That every child will soon make choices to sin over choices to do right. Everyone will fulfill Proverbs 22, 15, that folly, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. That Romans 3, 23 is true, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That Jeremiah 17, 9 is true, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That we believe the words of Jesus Christ in Mark 7, 21. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. We believe the words of the preacher in Ecclesiastes 7.20 that surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Those little blessings, they are quite literally on the road to hell. Now in theological discussions, there's a debate between two biblically supportable views of the creation of the human soul. The first view is called creationism. Don't mix that up with with Genesis 1 creationism. This is different. Creationism in this realm says that God creates every individual soul immediately and directly at the time of conception. And scripture does seem to support this. Zechariah 12 verse 1 says God, quote, forms the spirit of man within him. Hebrews 12, 9 says God is the father of spirits. That's the view of creationism, that every time a a man and woman come together and a child is created, at that moment from heaven, a soul is created. Creationism. The other major view, which is also biblically supportable, is sometimes called traducianism. T-R-A-D-U-C-I-A-N-I-S-M. Traducianism that both the body and the soul are transmitted from parents by natural procreation, that it's a, it's a direct supernatural creation by God isn't necessary. 
that the act of making a child, you make the whole child, body and soul. John 3, 6 seems to support this. When Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And we take that to mean the whole of a person, including the soul, since the contrast is given, that which is born of spirit is spirit, which refers to spiritual regeneration. Hebrews 7, verses 9 and 10 speaks of Abraham being responsible for the creation of his great-grandson, Levi, Levi being, quote, still in the loins of his ancestor, unquote, when Abraham was, was alive. Abraham was responsible for him coming into existence. I think it's important to note that Martin Luther believed the tradition view. And here's why. Because it best explains the passing on of guilt and the passing on of a sin nature. Now, he can't really be super firm on either view. can't be real dogmatic. Obviously, God is the creator of all things, so he's the ultimate creator of our souls. We're a complex unit of body and soul, but I do lean toward the tradition view, and I'll tell you why. A God-ordained procreation process best explains total depravity. I think it best explains the passing on of rebellion and sin and iniquity from generation to generation. It best fits with Psalm 51.5 that, quote, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Without the tradition view, and God is making every soul, why would he not just make everyone perfect? But we pass on sin coming all the way down from Adam to us. What is the burden of parenting for God's glory. The burden of parenting for God's glory is that you are bringing into the world little ones who must answer to God for their actions, that their only hope is Christ, that no matter how wonderful a parent you are, you cannot make your children into Christians. Your parenting definitely presents the gospel to your children, but ultimately it is the Lord who prepares the heart, it is the Holy Spirit who moves to save your child, and you cannot parent biblically without a belief in and an understanding of the doctrine of depravity, that you're in a race, you're in a battle, you're in a contest for the hearts of your children. And the more worldly competition you introduce into the contest, the more likely you're going to lose that battle. So, Yes, by God's grace, you can have a quiver full of children, the arrows of your youth. But remember, before they are a quiver full, they are a handful. They have a sin nature that must be dealt with. Well, let me give you our game plan for the coming weeks. We're going to look phrase by phrase at Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. First, the principle of heart motivation. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And we're going to look at the principle of respectful submission. Honor your father and mother. We're going to look at the principle of natural outcomes, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. We're going to look at the principle of gracious relationship. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. We're going to look at the principle of consistent consequences, but bring them up in the discipline. And we're going to look at the principle of divine truth and instruction of the Lord. And then we're going to tag one more message, our best tool of all. We'll close out the series by looking at the principle of prayerful parenting. And we're going to unleash some of the most beautiful prayers of parents that are found in the Bible. And we're going to let them be our teachers to cap off that series. Well, ultimately, we talk about parenting and we talk about um, our children, but it always leads us back to our Father, our Father, God. 
But God is not everybody's father. If anybody says to you that God is the father of all, all uh, people, yeah, that's true to a certain degree in that he's their creator. But he is not the father of all for all time. Ultimately, he will become the judge of most and the father of a few. And there's only one way to have God be your father, and that is to get in good with his son. And the way to get in good with his son is to understand that his son, Jesus Christ, paid the only penalty, the only way for your sin, and that Christ alone is the doorway to meet the father and to have him be your father. And I would hope that each one of you, particularly if you're uncertain whether God is your father or not, don't worry about parenting your children. That's the least of your concerns because you will be separated from your children for all eternity in a burning, living fire of hell. Your number one concern is your father and that God be your father. And that only happens through Christ. Only happens through Christ. Our Father, we do thank you this morning for the opportunity to do that which glorifies you. And the Bible is not written as a systematic theology. It's not written as a how-to guide for life, although it contains all of those things. It is the story of redemption. It is the story of Christ. And it is the story of those who would reject Christ as being ultimately judged for eternity and those who would, by faith, repent of their sin and come to faith in Christ as those who will be in his presence for all eternity. But Lord, we are living here on this earth and we are stuck with our sin natures and we are giving these little blessings, these little children, and while they're beautiful the day they're born and they are beautiful as infants, the moment that they begin to show their will, it becomes very apparent that they are rebels against a holy God. And so I pray for all of our parents here, Lord. I pray that you would help them to obey the scriptures concerning being parents. And I pray that you would help all of those, Lord, whose children are grown. Help them to be a, a support and to come alongside their own children who may have children, to come alongside our parents here, Lord, Help us to operate as a family, as a unit, as, a, as the body of Christ. And once again, Lord, we beseech you, we beg you, we plead with you for the souls of every child represented in this church, that you would save them, that the wind of the Holy Spirit would blow on their little hearts and they would recognize their sin, that they would repent and we would see every one of them standing before your throne someday, Lord. We ask this with boldness. We believe that would bring Christ honor the one who welcomes so openly and smilingly the children to his knee. Might heaven welcome our children as well. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.